this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Our scripture this morning is Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. And the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the million-dollar question when you're studying Revelation is, how's the world going to end? And when? Those are kind of the two big ones, right? When is this all going to happen, and how's it going to take place? And people scour this book looking for these questions, the answers to these questions. Some people believe that it's all symbolic, that none of this destruction that we're going to talk about today is actually going to happen in the future, that these are just symbols of things that that. God is doing spiritually. Some people that believe that every single thing is going to happen exactly like they're described, that these judgments are all going to take place and God is going to do these things on the earth someday. I want you to know that I, I take Revelation very literally in that I believe that John really had this vision from God and he is really describing the things that he really saw. So, so in that way, I take Revelation absolutely literally. I believe that this is, is a true revelation from God and that these things are things that John saw and that God wanted him to see. Does this mean that God is actually going to someday in the future poison a third of the water supply on earth? Does that mean there will be actual giant locust demons coming and co committing horrific mass murders? I do not know, and I'm here to tell you this. Now, I would never say that this is impossible. I would never say that, that these things won't happen exactly as they're described. There's that, I mean, that is a definite interpretive possibility. But the thing is, I can't tell the future. I'm, I don't have a crystal ball. I do know that when people interpreted the Old Testament prophecies in the days before Jesus, they got a bunch of stuff wrong. When they, when they thought, when they were interpreting about the Messiah, there were a lot of things that they thought were going to happen that didn't end up happening, and a lot of things that they didn't see coming that ended up happening. So, you know, there, there's a lot of room for interpretation when it comes to prophecy. Make no mistake, God will judge. There will be consequences for sin. But I don't know if those consequences 
are actually going to look like the way they're described here or if this is a symbol of the way things happen in the spiritual world. See, the thing is, if we focus on a future meaning of this judgment to the exclusion of a spiritual meaning, then we can miss out on some of those spiritual truths that we can incorporate into our lives now. And in my mind, it's not good to be prepared for a future that we may or may not live to see and then miss out on the truths that we could be applying to our lives now. But if we, uh, if we focus on the spiritual meaning of the text, if we focus on some of these symbols and what they mean for what God is doing in, the, in our spiritual lives today, then we can also apply that to a future. So God is doing something spiritually in this text. Maybe it'll pan out the exact way it's described in the future. Maybe that meaning is limited to the spiritual realm. I don't know. But if I focus on the symbolic meaning that I can apply here and now, then I can leave the future in God's hands and, and worry about how I apply this in the present. So that's how I intend to interpret the great tribulation that we're about to talk about today. So some people look at these seals and trumpets and bowls and they interpret it as a great tribulation at the end of time, which may or may not happen. But what we're going to focus on today is that Revelation is a highly symbolic vision of an invisible reality that undergirds everything we see. Last week, we talked about the invisible reality of the heavenly worship that's going on. And today, we're going to focus on the invisible reality of the destructiveness of sin. We see that this reality that we are living in an ongoing tribulation right here and now because of Satan's rebellion and because of the influence of fallen Babylon on our world. Have you ever seen a pattern in someone's life that you knew wasn't going to end well? Like, have you ever had a, a, an employee at work and you just knew this person was exhibiting this pattern of laziness and one day he's going to drop the ball so bad that you're going to have to fire him for it? It's just kind of a matter of time. I had this guy that reported to me one time when I was uh, uh, the boss at the mailroom at seminary. And this dude never filled out his time card correctly. Never in the whole time he was employed with me. Every two weeks I'd have to say, come on, buddy. You put your hours here and you put the total here. And it's like, if this guy can't bother to get paid for his work, well, how is he messing up? The mail, you know, how if he can't be bothered with the details of his time card, how is he doing with the details of the mail? And I was like, it's only a matter of time. Luckily, he quit before I had to fire him. But, you know, it was coming. Or have you seen a couple that exhibited some really unhealthy patterns in the relationship? And they just fight all the time and they fight dirty. And you're like, one of these days it's going to go too far. And you just kind of hope that they break up before one of them ends up in jail. That's kind of how I interpret this stretch of revelation. There is a pattern in our world. There's a pattern in our lives of sin. And it's not going to end well. I believe that the, the destructiveness of sin will end up in judgment. I believe that, that sin is destructive on its own. And it, and it leads to bad things. 
So I believe that these symbols both speak of the destructive pattern of sin that's ongoing in the world today, and it points to the ways in which that pattern of sin will ultimately lead to ultimate devastation. And God is using the violent imagery in this, in this book to shake us awake, to get us to confront the problem of sin for the, for the destructive force that it really is. These symbols proclaim the devastating consequences of sin and God's final victory over sin. But they don't necessarily predict the method that Jesus will use to defeat sin. God is trying to get us to break up with sin before someone goes to jail. He's trying to get us to fire our sin employee before they screw up so bad that the, the job can't be fixed. So let's dive into it. Last time we saw Revelation, Jesus, the worthy Lamb of God, was about to open the seven seals of his scroll. So here's what happens with those seven seals. And I'm not going to, I mean, this is chapters upon chapters in the Bible. So I'm going to summarize these seals for you. The first seal is a, is a horseman on a white horse. And he, he represents the rulers of the world and worldly power. He is an antichrist. Um, now, the word antichrist is nowhere to be found in Revelation. It's actually in the books of 1 and 2 John. But, but he is a figure with power that seems like Christ, but it is not Christ. Okay? So it, it symbolizes worldly power, worldly influence, the leaders of the world. A Roman emperor would certainly fit the bill of the rider on the white horse. Any leader that claims godlike power, no matter when he or she lives, could fit this bill. And they've been given a temporary victory, allowed by God for a time. But God's the one who's actually in charge. So there's this temporary victory given to this forces of the world. The second seal is a horseman on a red horse. This horse represents war. And the consequences of worldly power for leaders, they're greedy for more. So they go to war to get more kind of follows from the worldly leaders. The third seal is a horseman on a black horse. He represents famine. This famine is a symbol of economic oppression. And those people with worldly power would rather see you starve to death than have it affect their bottom line. They would rather you starve and, and squander away than have to pay their shareholders a penny less. The horseman on a black horse is famine and economic oppression. The fourth seal is a horseman on a pale horse. This is death. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin. The world, the powers of the world, greedy, worldly power leads to death. So those are these, these four horsemen, the four, four seals. The fifth seal is when the souls of the martyrs cry out in judgment. These folks need justice. They've been killed for their faith. They've suffered at the hands of the rulers of the world, and they need a break. And God assures them that their consolation will come. And that's the thing is that, that judgment is part of the grace of God. Those who are suffering at the hands of injustice need judgment. They need righteousness to prevail. You can't have grace without some judgment too. Because if people keep on sinning, keep on hurting folks, well, that's not grace. The sixth seal is an earthquake, and the worldly leaders are shaken in their boots. And it shows that there are limits to worldly power. Earthly leaders can't do a doggone thing about nature. 
They can't have power over the spiritual world. God is ultimately in charge. No matter how much power we think we have, an earthquake can come along tomorrow and wipe it out. God is sovereign. It's what it's showing. And the second seal is half an hour of silence in heaven. Now think about last week, all the worship and all the noise that was going on there. This, this silence seems downright eerie. But he, he says at one point that an angel comes with a censer that represents the prayers of the people. And the prayers of the people shake the world. And it's showing us how the power of prayer is the thing that really disrupts fallen Babylon, really disrupts the, the greedy powers of the world. So with these seven seals, God is exposing the invisible reality of the corruptive power of sin. It seems so attractive at first to try to get worldly power. It seems harmless. It seems like we can get away with it, that we can manage our way to keep our worldly power and also keep our hands clean, but we just can't because sin and greed is destructive. Power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts, or absolute power corrupts absolutely. We cannot flirt with these horsemen and expect to stay away from the results of the destructiveness and death. Our hats are either in the ring with Jesus or they're in the ring with the world and the worldly structures of power. So we've looked at how the worldly power structure and how it's doomed to fail. And after we get the seven seals, then we come to the seven angels blowing seven trumpets in heaven. And each trumpet summons something terrible. And, and there are echoes of, of the ten plagues in Egypt from here on out. So the first trumpet summons hail and fire and a third of the grass and trees are burned up. The second trumpet is a mountain falls into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood and a third of the sea creatures died and a third of the ships sink. The third trumpet is called a star named Wormwood turns fresh water bitter and a third of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. The fourth trumpet, a third of all light goes black and there's this awesome part where this eagle comes out and, and the first four trumpets because of this eagle and, and what he symbolizes, it shows that the first four trumpets are a sign of the diminishment of the natural world, like the world as we know it. But these last three, because of what the, the eagle says, they're reserved for fallen Babylon. They're reserved for Satan and his forces in the world. So the first four are kind of things that are happening in, on earth. These last three are for worldly power. So the fifth trumpet is nuts. And I want to read a little bit of it. It's in Revelation 9, 1 through 11. These locust demons come out and torture people. It's crazy. He says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven and earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but the death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. 
They had tails like scorpions with stingers, and then their tails is their power to harm people for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. I mean, these guys sound serious. But they show that, guys, the enemy is real. And he hates people. It's not like if you show up on Satan's team, then he's going to be good to you. He hates you even more. He's torturing the people that are, that are on his side. Ugh. The sixth trumpet is the angels and these terrible riders are released to kill a third of mankind. And the other two-thirds still don't repent. They still keep on worshiping idols. They keep on serving the horrible ones that are doing all the killing. It says in chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, it says, The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. So then there's the second trumpet. And the second trumpet brings about praise to God and just talks about how God is about to win over all of this. So in these seven trumpets, you notice that the number one-third comes up a lot. And to me, one-third is showing that sin diminishes things. Sin has diminished the world in all kinds of destructive ways. But there's a mercy in it that, that God hasn't allowed sin to completely destroy. So the enemy and the sin have diminished the world, but God still loves and cares for it. The dis diminishment of creation can be squarely blamed on Satan. He is the enemy. He hates you. He's horrible, and yet we still fall for his lies all the time. Even though we know where it's heading. Even though we're fully aware of what sin is doing to our souls and our relationships and our bodies, we still can't manage to worship the one true God. And so the enemy ravages us over and over. And if the people here would just repent then the destructiveness of sin would stop and there would be peace. God does not enjoy letting people fall to the destructiveness of sin. He doesn't enjoy letting people have the consequences for their sin. But the consequences are a direct result of sin's destructiveness. So then God finally steps in. There's judgment. There's a jump in the text where some more stuff happens that we're going to cover in future weeks. There's a false witness and a beast and a dragon. We're going to get to all those guys. They're, they're the enemy. They come out of in force against God, and God decides to deal with them once and for all. And he brings the judgment in Revelation. And it even reminds me more of the ten plagues in Egypt. He does it with seven bowls. And here he's pouring out the bowls of his wrath on the forces of the world that are against him. Not because he hates them but because he can no longer allow the destructiveness of sin to keep harming his people. And so he has to reign victorious. And even still, the point of these bowls is not for God to destroy his enemies, but that these people might turn away and recognize the righteous power of God and repent. So the first bowl is horrible sores that are all over people who bear the mark of the beast. The second bowls are that everything in the sea dies. The third bowl is all fresh water is turned to blood. 
The fourth bowl is that the sun just scorches people. The fifth bowl is that the kingdom of the beast is plunged into the darkness. And people curse God because of their sores and because of the darkness, but they still refuse to repent. The sixth bowl is that the kings of the world gather at Armageddon and there's one final surge for for fallen Babylon and for the earthly power of sin. One last hurrah for these worldly kings to try to assert their will and their power against God. And then the seventh bowl is God's judgment on fallen Babylon. We find that in Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and the throne saying, it is done. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a violent earthquake such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered the great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of hail. So fearful was that plague. And God wins. God wins against fallen Babylon and sin and the devil. Now, I know this is a lot. It's a lot of content. It's a lot of wrath. It's a lot of destruction. But, you know, I had this parishioner a few years ago who had some heart chest pains and went to the hospital for a heart cath. And the doctor told her that she had a 70% blockage in the artery called the widow maker. And her daughter was telling me after the fact that she was so thankful that her mom experienced these chest pains and that things happened because they did. Because the reason that artery is called the widow maker is because most of the time people don't experience a single symptom until it's too late until they've got 100% blockage, and they die. And so it was by God's grace that her mom experienced chest pains at 70%, so it would expose this partial blockage before it got to be too late. And I believe that that's what John is doing with this part of Revelation. He is exposing us to the ugliness and consequences of sin right now. There's this invisible reality that we can't see wherein sin is literally killing us. Where our allegiances to worldly power are killing us. And we might not know about it on our own until it's too late. And so God's doing the uncomfortable work of exposing our sin for what it really is. An ugly blot upon our souls. So that we might have the work done to remove that blot before it's too late. And he's doing it all in the hopes that we might repent. That we might find our sin as ugly and as destructive as God does. That we might realize the ways in which we cave to the craven power of the structures of the world that are dooming us. And we need to cast those people aside and pledge our allegiance to Jesus first and foremost. We can read this passage and get scared for some kind of future tribulation. And it might be coming... I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that it's not. But I don't think that's primarily what this passage is for. I think it's meant to expose the ways in which sin is wreaking havoc in our world here and now. One day God is going to deal with sin once and for all. And it's not going to be pretty for those who refuse to repent. But the fact is, 
people here and now are being torn apart because of sin, because of abuse. There are people being killed, hurt, and abused in horrible ways across the world and in our own city right now because sin runs rampant in our world. Just this weekend, an 18-year-old kid published a white supremacist manifesto and drove four hours to a different city so that he could kill as many people of color as possible at a grocery store. The sin is happening now. The destructiveness is out there right now. And we are under judgment because of it. And the thing is, we can try to ignore it. We can try to sweep it under the rug. We could turn away and refuse to look, but that doesn't mean it's not there. And John is what he's doing is making it to where we can't turn away. We can't refuse to look. We have to see the destructive power of sin, but so that we repent. Sin is a real problem in our world, and it's not getting any better on its own. It's not going to go away by itself. But the good news today is that we serve a God who is going to do something about it. He is going to judge righteously. He is going to wipe sin and brokenness off the face of the earth. And he is going to put things to right. And we worship him because of that. The good news of the gospel today is that sin is not our only option. Punishment is not our destiny. He gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. He offers us opportunity upon opportunity to repent. He came to free us from sin and to give us abundant life in him. He's a good God, full of grace and full of mercy, and he warns us about sin's destructive power now so that we might not have to live with the consequences of it later. So now is as good a time as any to ask ourselves, whose side are we on? Are we on the side of the worldly powers? Are we on the side of the enemy who hates you and wants to torture you? Are we on the side of the people who lie, cheat, and steal to hold on to whatever control and power they have? Or are we on the side of the lamb who was slain, who is coming again to defeat sin and death, and who's going to be victorious and who desires abundant life for you and me? Today's a great day to look at our lives. Take a look at the secret sins that we have hidden beneath the surface. The ways in which we exert selfishness. The ways in which we know we're not honoring God. Is it worth it? Knowing the consequences that are coming, knowing the destructiveness that that sin wreaks, is it worth it? What are we going to do today to make sure we're not brought down by the destructive power of sin? There is only one who can free us from it, and it's Jesus. He is a rescuer, and he's right here. Y'all, I do not enjoy preaching fire and brimstone sermons. <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of what this has to be. But the fire and the brimstone isn't the point. The point is that we have an opportunity to escape the destructiveness of sin. but we have to take it seriously. We have to take sin seriously. And it's just not, not going to go away just because we don't like to talk about it. 
So let's take this opportunity today to repent and trust that the God of grace gives us plenty of grace to cover any sin that we repent of and to give us power to live an abundant life. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, this was a tough one. It's a tough one to have to hear about destructiveness of sin. It's a tough one to see that when we fail to offer ourselves to you, that there are consequences for that. God, so often the, the worldly forces, the, the ones that even the ones that we think are the good guys, the truth is they're chasing after worldly power and that worldly power is opposed to your kingdom lamp power. And God, so many times we make compromises, compromises so that we can stay in power, compromises so that we can stay comfortable, compromises so that we can just have pleasure, compromises so that we can go down the list. We compromise and we, we get close to sin and we flirt with these horsemen because we think that we can get away with it, but you've shown us that we can't. We know where sin is going, but we know where faithfulness is going to. Give us grace, Father, to follow you in all our ways. Direct our paths so that we might escape the destructiveness of our own sin. Be with us, Father. In your name I pray. Amen.